All right, thanks for joining. Hey, why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles, which I hope you have handy, and we'll be in Acts chapter 14. We uh, returned to our study in the book of Acts yesterday, looking at the beginning verses, the first uh, seven verses of chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas were making their way uh, on uh, throughout their first missionary journey. They now came to the region of Galatia, where they... Um, Worked in, uh, brought the gospel to cities like Lystra and Derby and such, Iconium, and this region. We also pointed out yesterday that um, uh, that when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, uh, this was the region that he was sending the letter to, and it encompassed a number of churches, namely again uh, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia. Um, these were the believers that would have received that letter in the Galatian region, as opposed to, we drew a contrast between the region of Galatia as opposed to uh, some of the letters in the New Testament that were specifically to cities like uh, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, and so on. And so we pick up kind of in that context. Yesterday, uh, as they were preaching the gospel in Iconium, uh, ultimately they faced opposition, so they dug in their heels and they stayed there a long time teaching the gospel and such. Well, eventually, when persecution rose up against them and they had to leave, they ended up leaving that area and ultimately making their way down to Lystra and Derby, where they, uh, as the passage in verse 7 says, they, uh, uh, they continued to preach the gospel in that area. Interesting, um, uh, in the book of Acts in the beginning, when the gospel was just in Jerusalem, uh, it was actually Paul's persecution <clears throat> of the believers there that sort of uh, spread the embers of the gospel out to the surrounding region, as Jesus said uh, they would bring the gospel to. Well, here it's Paul himself who's being persecuted, and he ultimately then is brought out of the area he was in and begins to spread the gospel in the surrounding regions there as well. And so kind of an interesting full circle-ish kind of thing there. But we'll pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 14. Where now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. <clears throat> so, again, kind of continuing on a thought from yesterday. Uh, the miracles that uh, ultimately the disciples do really find uh, really uh, find their purpose in becoming a way of glorifying God and opening the way for the gospel. Now, as we'll see in the in the verses to come here, there's sort of an odd response to this miracle, and we'll get into that in a moment. But there's this this um, interesting uh, sort of um, uh, uh, bit of wording here, where it says that Paul, looking intently at him, uh, this man who was crippled from birth, unable to walk. And seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul then spoke to him. Well, how, how can you see that someone has faith to be made well? Was there an enthusiastic look on his face or something like that? I tend to think this is probably, as much as anything, uh, sort of the Holy Spirit's prodding him to recognize that this is a, a place where he wanted to do a miracle. Uh, again, the miracles being a, a means of validating the gospel message as Paul was preaching the gospel in this area. The miracle would have sort of driven that point home, certainly for this, this man who ultimately would be healed. But there's this interesting idea, the idea that he had faith to be healed. In Jesus' own ministry, we saw him going throughout the countrysides, healing everybody that was brought to him and just producing wonderful um, uh, um, examples of the love of God in action as he restored people to health in that. Um, but there were those times that he came somewhere where they um, did not have faith in that town, and so therefore he did not do many miracles there. 
So there is this kind of odd, interesting interplay between <clears throat> between our faith and uh, the rewarding of that faith and that kind of a thing. Now, I do want to be careful when I talk about that, because there are a number of other elements we want to make sure that we're always keenly aware of in the midst of this kind of a discussion. And that is that God does what God does. First and foremost, have to realize that God is sovereign, and there are times when he chooses to heal, and there are times when he chooses not to heal. Uh, we see oftentimes in the course of where the bridegroom was among the the believers, you know, he was there, and, and so there was rejoicing, and so there was miracles, and there was wonderful acts of, <clears throat> of supernatural power in the ministry of Christ. However, in no way was this intended to imply that in every situation, every time, always would there be healings. As a matter of fact, Paul himself would be an example of this. Uh, in uh, When writing to the Corinthians, he spoke of how um, he was being buffeted by a messenger of Satan, and three times he prayed the Lord to remove this from him. But the Lord responded and said um, that uh, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so the idea, and, and there's no indication that Paul was healed there. And so there are times when not healing is the thing that God is going to use to ultimately accomplish his purposes and even bring him glory. Um, think of somebody like Job, who was not even... Uh, forced to suffer so many things because of his own doing. This was actually Satan sort of uh, testing God in a way and sort of challenging God in this kind of thing. Well, Job didn't know any of that. Uh, and so, uh, but nonetheless, God is using Job. And how many people have been blessed by the story of Job's perseverance and his not questioning God foolishly or charging God foolishly and that kind of thing? Um, there, there are times when God just chooses not to ultimately, excuse me there, deliver us from what's going on, whether it be sickness or otherwise, because he's actually using that for something. And so that being the case, in this particular instance, Paul was able to somehow know that this guy had faith to be healed. And so he went ahead and uh, and God used him to heal that man at that day. Well, the response to that was uh, something that uh, was not what they expected. Uh, he sprang up and began walking. And verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, uh, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Uh, Zeus is a master god over so many of the, the gods of that particular pantheon, and Hermes is a lesser god in that. And so, not to read too much into it, but it may lend something to the idea that Paul, in his physical stature, was not an impressively big person. Apparently Barnabas was more impressive physically than Paul was, that he was sort of seen as being potentially Zeus. Um, and again, speaking of the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, there is this accusation of Paul that he's unimpressive and all of that kind of thing. This may have something to do with that. This may lend uh, some additional evidence to that idea about Paul's physical stature. But nonetheless, his physical stature is certainly second behind uh, that of his uh, spiritual stature as he uh, is, is serving the Lord and speaks with power and such as we see throughout the epistles and, and here in the book of Acts. But in any case, as this miracle takes place, they are so shocked by this that they assume the gods have shown up, uh, and which may lend some credence to the idea that maybe their worship of these uh, these pantheonistic gods is, was a pretty dead faith. They weren't used to seeing something like this, the, the a legit working of supernatural nature. And so they assume that their gods have come to walk among them. And this, of course, uh, er, brings Paul to respond. Well, actually, first in verse 13, 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Uh, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring good news, we bring uh, you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, well, first, uh, so as they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as uh, Hermes and Zeus, Paul immediately speaks to that and says, no. Now, this is important. Paul doesn't use this idea that they're being seen as false gods to sort of, in a backdoor kind of way, bring the gospel in. No, he stops that right off the bat, or he tries to. It turns out they they will not be diffused, and so they continue on until another event takes place. But but they set themselves up in front of the people and say, no, we are not these gods. In fact, we are just like you. They're not taking credit for the miracles. They're not claiming any inherent power of their own. They are giving all the glory to God and saying, no, we've come to tell you about the living God so that you'll turn away from these false gods. Now, again, there's a plain statement there of the falseness of the gods, Zeus and Hermes, and presumably by extension, the entire pantheon there. Paul and Barnabas do not try to use that as a way to get in uh, and say, yes, well, you know, I'm Zeus and I am here to tell you about the true God. And they don't do any of that kind of stuff. They very quickly seek to diffuse this misunderstanding and certainly to turn away the worship that was starting to befall them. And draw they draw the attention immediately back to the Lord. This is, of course, always the right posture. And we want to be thoughtful about the means and methods that we use to bring the gospel, that we don't build ourselves up or or use something dishonest in order to bring the gospel in. A straightforward preaching of the gospel, giving all the credit and glory to God, especially if something supernatural takes place in the midst of the proclamation of that good news. We God forbid we ever take credit for that which is not ours to begin with. It is all of God. And so they do this rightly. Now, as it turns out that the people won't really be dissuaded from their worship, Uh, So let me finish the passage. Uh, Paul continues in verse uh, 16 and says, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you the rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, though, unfortunately, sadly, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So the people would not be dissuaded, but neither would Paul and Barnabas. They continued to push on the fact that no, all of these false gods you've been worshiping have been just like throughout the world. People have gone in their own way, worshiping their own gods. But even in that, God was not without a witness. And Paul begins now to, to uh, describe how God, is, as, as Jesus said, has brought the rain down on the just and the unjust. Uh, when you see that, when Jesus says that, and when Paul is alluding to something similar here, the idea here is that God is bringing blessing from heaven upon both the just and the wicked, because he is gracious, because he is allowing that to be a testimony to his goodness, and, 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 and in the hope that, uh, that, that his kindness will lead them to repentance in that. Um, and in some cases, no doubt, it did. But Paul is making the case that God is good, and he's just, and he's gracious, but he's also the real God, the exclusive God. Uh, there is no God beside him. Now, we see that truth borne out throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, 
3, 4, 5, 6, and all these statements. There is no other God but me. If there's, uh, there's no God besides God of one. And statements like this where God makes it very, very clear that there is only one God. Uh, and Paul is reaffirming that here and saying that all the blessings that you may have experienced in your life prior to this have been because of God's goodness and graciousness in that. And you need to turn to him. Nonetheless, the people would not ultimately turn. So it doesn't actually, uh, this worship of them doesn't actually end uh, until the next section that we uh, look at here, uh, starting in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, presumably Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium, and they came down and they persuaded the crowds and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And so Paul and Barnabas couldn't convince the people to stop worshiping, but somehow these uh, 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 these Jewish people that came down that were rejecting Christ came and ultimately persuaded the people to reject Paul and Barnabas. And Paul actually is stoned seemingly to death. Uh, and in verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So Paul is beaten badly enough where he is supposed to be dead. He is stoned so badly that they think that they've lost him. Uh, but the disciples gather around, presumably to pray for him, to minister to him, to try and revive him in that, and Paul does revive. And uh, it may be, by the way, um, in his later writings, Paul speaks of an event where he is referring to himself in sort of the third person. I knew a man uh, you know, who ultimately went to the third heaven or that place where God dwells. Uh, and saw things that would be unlawful to describe. In other words, what he saw was so incredible that it would be a crime to try and use human words to describe what he'd seen. Well, it is generally presumed that that account of what happened, what he saw and having gone to heaven, may have taken place right here because Paul may have actually uh, died during that or was at least unconscious and the Lord gave him a vision in that time and when he was revived... Uh, later on, he would go on to write about this. That, that may be the instance where that takes place. So they gather around him, but he gets back up. He's revived, and he just goes right back to work. The brother's unstoppable. You're just not going to shut this guy down. Uh, I mean, literally, he's, he's beaten practically to death, but the next minute he gets up, and he's going right back to work. Here he goes off with Barnabas to Derby. Now, when they had preached the gospel in that city, and made many disciples, I love that, they preached the gospel and made many disciples. Christian ministry, gospel ministry, is not just about people being converted, but also that they then grow into disciples following Jesus. And so they, they taught, they brought the gospel, people were saved, they were discipled, and this was their ministry. Uh, so when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Again, they're in the Galatian region still, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so another um, unpopular word, uh, certainly in our day, um, but the idea that believers can expect to go through tribulation and hard times and difficulty that is different than the tribulation period, which may be part of the wrath of God in that 70th week of Daniel. We're not talking about that per se. We're just simply talking about here, the context in this passage is simply talking about the normal experience of believers. We ought not think that, um, that uh, as Wearsby, uh, Warren Wearsby would say, we ought not think that the, uh, 
Um, Christian life is a playground. In fact, it's a battleground. There's a lot of uphill. There's a lot of struggle, a lot of pressing on in spite of opposition in that. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. And so, uh, when they had appointed elders, verse 23, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had, in whom they had believed. And so, having planted churches in these towns, again, these churches would later receive a letter uh, that Paul would address to the Galatians. These are the believers he's writing. Um, they lead them to the Lord. They come to faith. They disciple them. And they even go as far as to appoint leaders over churches. And elders are now in place to lead these believers as the churches are now born. And so, verse 24, as we come to the end of the chapter, when they had passed through, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia or Atalia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, presumably Antioch in Syria, uh, where they, as goes on to say, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work uh, that they had fulfilled. And so they went full circle and returned to the place where they had been sent from. Again, in Acts 13, chapter uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it's where the Holy Spirit separates them, Paul and Barnabas, for the ministry that would ultimately unfold in this uh, first missionary journey. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So we come to the end of chapter 14, and as we move further into the book of Acts now, we will come to what is the first council in the church's history. And so we'll spend some time looking at those things, discussing the idea of the law and grace and how they work together or how they fit into God's plan is ultimately the better way to put that. So we'll look at that more next time. If you have any thoughts or comments or questions about anything we've been covering, please feel free to share them. Uh, I'd love to interact with you all on our YouTube channel in the comments section, or maybe you want to go to my website at parsonspad.com where you can uh, watch these same videos and you can also comment or email me from there as well. You can also follow these videos on Odyssey. Uh, We just started posting there as well. So it's another place you can watch these videos if you are so inclined to use that platform. So um, that said, Thanks for coming and uh, coming on board and watching and following along. I uh, got a note from uh, from one of our viewers that has started their own study in the Book of Acts, and and uh, I love to hear that some of these studies have been helpful. So praise the Lord for that. That's great, and I hope you'll continue to join as we go through the Word together. So thank you for watching. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness. We thank you for your Word. We pray that you'd help us to walk with you as we study it digest it, allow it to have its place in our hearts and in our minds, transforming us into the image of Christ, conforming us, pulling us further and further away from from anything resembling conforming to the world, Lord. We don't want any of that. Instead, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, uh, and ultimately that our lives would be an act, um, just an ongoing act of worship, an offering to you. So thank you for being gracious to us. Thank you for Jesus coming and dying for our sins, that we might be set free and that we might be able to experience a right relationship with you that ultimately reaches its crescendo as we see you face to face. And give us the fortitude, the strength, the courage, uh, the wherewithal to stand in the midst of of the evil day in which we do. Lord, we want to be pleasing to you. We want to be a blessing to you. And we want you to use us. And so we just commend ourselves to you and pray that you would do with us as you will that you might receive all the glory. Thank you, Father. We just bless you and praise you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.